Well, will you please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4. And these guys have some Bibles that are marked at Ephesians 4. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention so that you can follow along at the passage we'll be considering. Ephesians 4. It's said that the first rule of communication is to know your audience. That is to know something of the people that you're going to address. Haddon Robinson teaches preaching at the seminary level, and he's literally written the book on the subject. And he recommends when preparing for a sermon that the preacher mentally sits six or seven specific flesh and blood people around his desk as he prepares. He says, I've assembled such a committee in my mind as real to me as if they were there. In that group sits a friend who is an outspoken cynic. As I think through my material, I sometimes can hear him sigh. You've got to be kidding, Robinson. That's pious junk food. What world are you living in? Another is an older woman who is a simple believer who takes preachers and preaching very seriously. While I prepare my sermons, I ask, am I raising questions that will trouble her? Will my sermon help her? A teenager sprawls in the circle, wondering how long I'm going to preach. (laughs) I can make the sermon seem shorter if I keep him interested. A divorced mother takes her place, feeling alone and overwhelmed by her situation. What do I say to her? Another is an unbeliever who doesn't understand religious jargon and yet has come to church but doesn't quite know why. Another makes his living as a dock worker. He has a strong allegiance to his union. He thinks management is a ripoff. He curses if he gets upset. And he enjoys bowling on Thursday nights. He says he mixes the group up from time to time. And believe it or not, I try to do that very same thing. But it's a real challenge. Because, of course, the diversity of a congregation is almost endless. The circumstances and experiences and biases and questions that each person brings are unique. So although Robinson's recommendation is good and helpful, unfortunately it can't accommodate everybody. But one thing that makes me feel better about all that is this. Whatever the demographic makeup of an audience, age, gender, ethnicity, economic class, whatever, whatever the various profiles represented in the congregation, there are always two and only two kinds of people in the world. The quick and the dead. Now, I'm not referring to those who are fast, quick on the draw or fleet of foot versus those who are deceased. I've asked you to turn to Ephesians 4, where there's a passage we're going to look at in just a bit. But if you'll just hold your finger there and turn back just a page to chapter 2 and verse 4. Chapter 2 and verse 4. Which says... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, I want you to notice that same verse in the King James Version. On the screen, God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath, notice, quickened us. That is, made us alive together with Christ. And so when I say there are really only two kinds of people, the quick and the dead, in the spiritual realm, that's absolutely true. 
There are those who have been made spiritually alive. They've been quickened by the Spirit of God. And there are those who have not. Only two kinds of people. The quick and the dead, the spiritually alive, and the spiritually dead. And every Sunday, including this one, I'm speaking to two kinds of people. Now, unfortunately, neither group thinks that today's passage is speaking to them. Let's read it, and I'll explain why. It's in chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. And when you read that ugly picture, most of us think immediately, that may describe the folks in Hollywood or in France, but I'm just your garden variety American. I mean, sure, I make mistakes, but to describe me as having lost all sensitivity, to describe me as having given myself over to sensuality, to indulging in every kind of impurity and to be greedy for more. Now, come on, my behavior is not nearly that bad. And you're right. I don't know everyone here, but I'd hazard that few, if any of you, fit that profile of your behavior completely. Now, here is why there's the apparent disconnect between what we just read in verses 17 through 19 of Ephesians 4 and most of our experience. The truth is, you and I are not that bad in our behavior, but the Bible teaches you are that bad in your heart. The heart that God sees and which is drawn away from him and to other desires. And so we sometimes read the descriptions of humanity in the Bible, and those descriptions are worse than where we might be in our individual lives. That's because, thankfully, for all of us, our behavior is not as bad as it could be. But that's not because, at heart, we're better than the Bible says. It's because God's common grace restrains the effects of sin. So, for instance, we live in a culture shaped by Christian values. And even though that influence is waning, it still has a restraining effect on what people will do. The mores of society constrain what average people will consider doing. But if you put that same person in a subculture where the mores are different, the restraints are fewer, well, then watch him or her go. That's why we have phrases like, What happens in Vegas, what? Stays in Vegas. It's the reason that so-called gentlemen's clubs like to locate near airports. The assumption is that when people are away from home, they'll indulge in things that they would not otherwise do. One person has said it this way. We often refrain from performing evil actions because self-respect prevents us. That is, we have an image of goodness that we try to live up to. But the inclination is there. Take away the props of self-respect, remove the sting of conscience, and we will do anything to justify ourselves, gain what we want, serve our own ends, accrue power, and so on. This, of course, is why people sin in secret and why they whisper behind each other's backs rather than confront directly or reasonably. 
Such actions reveal their recognition that what they're doing, what they're doing and trying to get what they want is evil. Yet rather than not do it, they do it secretly as though God is somehow fooled. Jesus knew that most people would not commit, for example, an actual homicide. But he said, if you have hatred in your heart, you remember, you've committed murder already. And that is why we've all found ourselves saying at some point, after we've observed the behavior of someone we thought we knew, wow, that's just out of character for him. Well, no, it's not really out of character. He or she was just placed in the right circumstances to expose that particular aspect of their character. And the classic example is the church-going guy who conforms outwardly to the church culture. He follows all the rules, written and unwritten, and he castigates those who don't. And then suddenly he leaves his wife for a younger chick, and we all go, what happened? But all along in his heart, he was an approval junkie. He was still pursuing what he wanted. And when, for whatever reason, he got tired of pursuing it at church, he found it somewhere else, somewhere, and from someone other than Jesus. What the Bible is telling us is not that all of us, or even most of us, actually fit this complete profile in Ephesians 4 to the T, but that each of us could. And in our heart of hearts, we all do. It's saying that this is where given time and opportunity, given time and opportunity, our naturally sinful inclinations lead us. So friends, it's not whether you've arrived at where your heart can lead you. Most of us have not, thank God. It's not whether you've arrived at where your heart can lead you. The question is what road you're on. In the words of those great theologians, Led Zeppelin. Yes, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, there's still time to change the road you're on. But that time will run out. It'll run out today, tomorrow, next year. At some point, it will run out. But the fact that you're here means there's still indeed time to change the road you're on. In Ephesians 4, we have the contrast between two kinds of hearts that ultimately lead to two different kinds of lives. If you are a professing Christian, then you are part of the church, which, as we saw last week, the very word church means those who are called out, called out of the world and to God. Or you could think of it as those who are called out of spiritual death to life, called from being part of the dead to being part of the quick. And the lives the two groups are to lead are radically different. In contrast to what we read earlier in verses 17 through 19, verse 20 of Ephesians 4 says this. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. 
Those who have come to Christ have been called out of the one way of life and into the other way of life. They've been called out of spiritual death to, in the words of the title of our current series, of which this message is a part, Life in the Father's House. Now, in the three weeks so far of this series, we've seen the call to ministry that each of us has if we've been called into God's church and out of the world. The call to ministry, we did that in two parts. Last week, we saw the call to truth. And today, in the title of the message that's at the top of your outline, if you'll pull that out of your program, if you've not already done that, it's the call to holiness. Let's ask God to help us as we look at his call to holiness for his people. Father, we again acknowledge you as the Holy One that we could not approach, not even approach. We have no right to come before your throne other than the right secured for us by God the Son, the Lord Jesus, who is at the right hand of God the Father and intercedes as our great high priest. And so, Father, we thank you profoundly that we can talk to you, that we can approach you, that, yea, even your word tells us to approach you with confidence because of our high priest, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we ask you to help us as we consider that you have called us to be your special people, called us out of the world and to yourself to be different, set apart, to be holy, even as you are holy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We say in your outline, first of all this, we were, past tense, in the world and of the world. So those of us who are believers, those of us who are Christians, those of us whom God has called, were in the past in the world and we were of the world. Now Ephesians 4.17 says this, You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, the church to whom this letter was written, located in the city of Ephesus, had both Jews and Gentiles in it, but it was surrounded by a Gentile population. So to say that we must no longer live as the Gentiles is saying that their lives and our lives should not conform to the standards of the unbelieving, spiritually dead world around them. And that's because the world around them and around us is contrary to God. It's the world of which, according to verses 17 through 19, hearts are hard. Thinking is futile. Understanding darkened. Behavior indulgent. And all of this is called the world back in chapter 2 and verse 1. Here's what it says. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. It's this, friends, that Christians have been called out of by the grace of God. Though we were all by nature part of the world at one time, verse 4 says, as I read earlier in chapter 2, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. So you see there in chapter 2, it's saying this is where you were. And you were part of the world. And you followed its desires. But 
A strong contrast in verse 4 of chapter 2. In contrast to where you were, God now has given you spiritual life and He has saved you by His grace. And that's why I've named this point in your outline, we were past tense in the world and of the world. At the end of last week's message, if you were here for that, you may remember. If you weren't here for that or you don't remember, all of these are recorded You can get them on our website. But at the end of last week's message, I gave four possible relationships to the world. The first of which is you can be in the world and of the world. And that's the natural condition of all humanity and all of us at one time. Both in it and of it. Surrounded by it, participating in it, and drawing our values and our affections and our desires from it. We were in it and of it. Before coming to Christ, what's described in verses 17 through 19 is the way we would all naturally desire and think and act, if not restrained in some way. And the Bible's use, then, of the word world, in this sense, is consistently negative. Let me give you a number of passages in the Bible that speaks of the world out of which we have been called if we are Christians. Famously, Romans 12 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. James chapter 1, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. James again in chapter 4, friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And then famously in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world. Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now here's why. It goes on to say, for because everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And then John ends that this way. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now, I remind you of some of what I said last week regarding the world and worldliness and worldlings. What is the the world? What is a, a, a working definition of that, given what the Bible says? Well, as used in the verses just quoted, it's clearly not the physical place we live, as in, you might say, in six days God created the world. Rather, it's the values pursued in the world. The common Greek word for world in the New Testament is cosmos. And it can be defined this way. The world is the way non-Christians live apart from common grace. It's the way non-Christians live apart from God's restraining common grace. The worldly then, the worldly are those who live according to the fallen values of the world. And worldliness is fallen values expressed in the culture. At a particular place, at a particular time, the world expresses what it cares about, what it values, in particular ways and forms. And those who are worldly follow those. Now, as I said last week, not all that that those in the world do is wrong because some is common grace. That is, God's restraining common grace still has effects even on Those who are outside the family of God, outside the church, have not been called out of the world, are still in it. Such that they still do good things, like Mary. 
and produce music and the arts. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture or as theologian John Frame says, world is the bad part of culture. So here's what that means, friends. It means I haven't avoided worldliness by avoiding what the world does since some of what the world does is good. And if I withdraw myself from the world and its values and become isolated, I still take my own fallen values with me. So, for example, wise parents recognize this. And they give to their children what I call when I teach parenting, controlled exposure. Controlled exposure to the world. Unwise parents think that removing their children from it so that they're no longer in it means that they won't be of it. But remember, we... We're naturally in and of the world. So becoming no longer in does not mean you're not of the world. So I must say I was not shocked at the revelations regarding Josh Duggar. We must understand, friends, that a pristine and protected environment does not mean the absence of worldliness. Because wherever the human heart goes, there is the potential for worldliness. The call to holiness, then. I mean, that's what worldliness is. Holiness means to be set apart, to be different, to march to the beat of a different drummer, to have radically different affections and values. The call to holiness, then, is the call to discern. The call to distinguish what is good and usable from the culture and what is not. Christians never borrow from the world. Remember, world is the bad part of culture. We never borrow from the world because that, by definition, is fallen. But we share commonality with the culture, the good part of culture, because hear this, they stole the good part from us anyway. The world can only do good and right and beautiful and creative and fulfilling things because... Of God's grace given in common to all his creatures. And we all benefit from that. So as some have said, they live off the stolen capital. Actually, they say the borrowed capital. I say the stolen capital. Of the biblical worldview. So that when we do the same or similar things, it's not us borrowing from the world. It's the world that's plagiarizing from God without attribution. Never giving thanks to him. And so the call to holiness to be different in what we value means we need to see the world for what it is. Rather than be enamored by it, unfortunately, as so many Christians, as so many professing Christians are. If you're a Christian, you were in the world and you were of the world, both. And here's what that meant and here's what that means for the world, I say in your outline. The world's thinking is contrary to truth. The world's thinking is contrary to truth. The world, according to verse 17, is futile in its thinking. Now, that word for futile means not achieving the end, the aim, the purpose of a thing. So they use the mind that God has given, but they use it to empty, purposeless Futile ends. They do not use what God has given for the purpose for which he has given it. They are misappropriating God's stuff. 
Every time a person outside of Christ uses God's oxygen and breathes, they're using God's stuff, aren't they? But they're using God's stuff for their own ends. And that's why it says their thinking is futile. And the result, verse 18 says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having a naturally hardened heart that does not desire God, they then think, they, they think and then act accordingly. Because the truth is, friends, we all live out of a sense of identity. Who we believe we are, what we believe the future holds for us. And so, for instance, if someone has come to believe falsely that this life is all there is, how will you expect them then to act? Well, eat, drink, be merry for, right? Tomorrow we die. So if circumstances in this life then, with that view, are subpar, then of course I will act on that belief. Back in 2011, Britain experienced rioting. Similar to the rioting that we've had here in places like Ferguson and Baltimore and elsewhere. In Britain, opposition Labor Party leader Ed Miliband asked as this rioting was going on, he said, why are there people who feel they have nothing to lose and everything to gain from wanton vandalism and looting? Well, here's why. Because <laughs> they have a particular view of the world. This is all there is. So get it however you have to. Because that's what they've come to think about themselves and about life. Without the truth of God's Word... You then make up your own view of life and yourself and others, and it will, of necessity, be false. Ideas have consequences. What we believe about ourselves and God and life and others has effects on how we behave. And when put in different and sometimes difficult circumstances where the restraint of common grace is either reduced or removed, then the world can behave in bizarre and horrifying ways. So from verse 18, biblically, the brain, the mind, is connected to the heart. Did you know that? The way we think is connected to our heart desires. And what we desire affects the way we think and the way we see things. Thinking comes from desires. The base level motivation for every human being is what he or she desires. Do we desire God? If we desire anything more than God or anyone more than God, we have committed idolatry. The base motivation for every human being is what they desire, and those desires give rise to the way we think, to the way we speak, and the way we act. Desires result in thoughts and words and actions. And the passage... In verse 18, speaks of ignorance. But please understand, this ignorance is willful ignorance because it's rooted in a darkened heart that is rooted in a hardened heart of desire. So one commentator says, first comes their hardness of heart, then their ignorance, being darkened in their understanding. Next, and consequently, they're alienated from the life of God since he turns away from them until finally, in verse 19, 
They become callous and have given themselves up to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of uncleanness. This is not just true of the world as it manifests itself in the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. It's true of all humanity at all times ever since worldliness started. You all know where worldliness started? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. An alternative desire to God and the will of God. And so this goes all the way back there. And Romans chapter 1 in your Bible, verses 18 to 32. Romans 1, 18 to 32 deals with the condition of all humanity for all time. And interestingly, it has the same stages in it as are given in Ephesians 4 and in our passage. Of how humanity in its worldliness continues to remove itself further and further from God. John Stott says each passage reflects four stages. Romans 1 and Ephesians 4. Each have these four stages. The first stage is this. Obstinacy. And in Romans chapter 1, you see that in a few of the phrases in that passage. It says people suppress the truth by their wickedness. That although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. So stage one is this obstinacy. And you see that in Romans 1, but also in Ephesians 4. In our passage, verse 18, where it says this is due to the hardening of their hearts. A hardened, obstinate heart. So worldliness is rooted in the heart, desires, and influence. And its desires and it influences the mind. Which is the second stage. Darkness. And in Romans 1, that darkness is seen in several passages. Their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They became fools. They have a depraved mind. And you see that again in Ephesians 4. In our passage, this darkness in their thinking. Where verse 17 speaks of the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding. It speaks of the ignorance that is in them. This willful ignorance that I spoke of. Thinking then affects what we do. And the world's behavior reflects what it thinks and believes. And that's why in your outline I say not only is the world's thinking contrary to the truth. But now secondly, the world's behavior is inconsistent with the truth. The world's thinking is contrary to the truth. And because of these desires that are obstinate against God, it results in this futile thinking, this darkness in their thinking. But now in turn, that results in the way behavior is carried out. The world's behavior is inconsistent with God's truth. Verse 19 says, they indulge in every kind of impurity and are full of greed. And so God's restraining hand in common grace is removed. And the mores of society adopt and applaud and celebrate rebellion. Does that sound familiar, guys and gals? We are there, aren't we? When ESPN can have Caitlyn Jenner on and celebrate what God condemns very clearly, we are living in a world in which the hand, the gracious hand of God's common grace 
is being removed from the, the mores of our society. And that's a form of God's judgment. It's God's judgment upon a society that it's expressing its worldliness in particular ways. It's God giving the world what it asks for and allowing them to live with the consequences of it. And so the third stage of these four is that it's judgment. And Romans 1 says, therefore, God gave them over. It says, because of this, God gave them over again in verse 28 of Romans 1. God gave them over. And in our passage, likewise, in Ephesians 4. In God's judgment, because of these desires that have now resulted in these actions, God gives them over them. They are separated from the life of God. And as this condition settles in on a society at a given place and time, the next stage is wanton recklessness. Stage four is recklessness. And Romans 1 just lists how that recklessness then looks. Impurity. Shameful lusts, shameful acts, doing what ought not to be done. Every kind of wickedness. Ephesians 4 and verse 19 says it as well. Having lost all sensitivity, given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and full of greed. Ah. But friends... We were in the world. Thanks be to God. Were, past tense. We were in the world and we were of the world. But if you were part of the church, you were called to holiness. You're called to be different. You're called out of the world and to God. And so there's a contrast. And I say in your outline, we are in the world now, presently, but not of the world. We were in and of. We are now in, yes, but not of. Our values, our allegiances, our affections, our desires are not those of the world. Now, I said we gave four possible relationships to the world last week. We have two in your outline, in and of, in and not of. I'll remind you of the other two in just a bit. We've seen that the world's thinking is contrary to the truth. But in contrast to the world's thinking, in your outline I say the Christian's thinking is according to the truth. The Christian's thinking is according to truth. And having a different mindset and a different way of looking at things that results in a different way of life is not optional for the Christian. It's imperative. And you see it's imperative all the way back in verse 17. Where the Bible says, I tell you, and I insist on it in the Lord, you must not live as the Gentiles do. This is not optional. This is what God's people, God's holy people have been called to. Their thinking then is according to truth. And in verse 17, verses 17 to 19, it refers to, refers to their futile thinking and their darkened understanding and the ignorance of worldlings. But in contrast, according to verses 20 and 21, Christians have learned and they have heard and they've been taught the truth. 
So one commentator says, Scripture bears an unwavering testimony to the power of ignorance and error to corrupt, but also the power of truth to liberate, ennoble, and refine. The power of truth that we've been given, that we first heard in the gospel and to which we responded, and now that's to have ongoing effects in our lives in the call to holiness. That's why Jesus said in that prayer just the night before he died, sanctify them, that is, make them holy. You guys have that on the screen? Sanctify them by the truth. Sanctify means make them holy, set them apart. But notice, by the truth, your word is truth. So, professing Christian friend, as you make your choices in your life about how you imbibe the culture, are you discerning that which is worldly and that which the culture has stolen from God and choosing only the one and not the other? You ever think about that? How many times have you said, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it? Well, hear this. <laughs> of course. You will not, you will not see anything wrong with it unless and until you are immersed in Scripture and truth and teaching and learning. That's how you're sanctified. That's how you know what God is like and what God likes. What God is like and what He likes. So that then we can live a life accordingly. But you're only going to know that from his word. Not just from like taking a look and saying, no, nah, it doesn't seem that bad to me. Remember, we're born with a tendency to believe lies and the world tells lies. And we think that we're going to escape the world's heart shaping effect if we drink it in and do not imbibe God's word. What our culture has gradually allowed has shown where the hearts of our culture is and are. And what the church and professing Christians are allowing is showing where our hearts are. Friends, to imitate the world is not consistent with God's call to holiness. So when you came to Jesus, what changed? I mean, you know what changed was, I'm going to heaven, no longer going to hell, okay? But what changed about your habits? What changed about your priorities? What changed about your values? And you, can, you, you apply this to everything, but let me just apply it to one thing, just to give you an example of how deep it goes for us. It's not just our choices of media and entertainment and all of that, though it certainly includes those things, but... How do I react differently than those in the world do? Those who are still spiritually dead. How do I react differently to my circumstances than those who don't know the Lord? How do I react differently if I know I'm a child of the Father, that He knows absolutely everything, that my future is secure? Should I then react differently than the world does to the stuff that goes on in my life? Does that make a difference? Here's what Jesus said. Do not worry. 
saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? And I've got highlighted there for you, underlined and bold, italicized the word for. Here's why you don't do that. For, because those guys do that. That's what you used to do. That's what you were. But now you're children of the Father and it makes a profound difference. The pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Friends, if we're honest, we have to admit that we have become on easy terms with the world because we believe the packaging that the world provides and yet God has told us what's inside that packaging. The Christian's thinking is according to truth. And then I say in your outline, the Christian's behavior is consistent with truth. The Christian's behavior is consistent with truth. Now, those other two ways of relating to the world that I gave you last week are you can be not in the world and not of the world. Not in the world and not of the world. Who's that? That would be the Amish That would be a monastic, somebody who has isolated themselves from the world, tried to at least physically. Or you can be not in the world and yet of the world. You you remove yourself from the world's expressions of its fallen values, but you just create your own. That's unfortunately the evangelical church today. It's become worldly, ostensibly, in order to reach the world. Hear me, friends. The world does not need a worldly church. It's a contradiction in terms. The world needs a a separate people, a different people that offer something different to the world. And Christian people, like professing Christian churches, get caught up in this. And this is... What the Bible anticipates that we will struggle to get caught up in. And that's why we're told in these remaining verses, verses 22 to 24, verse 22, put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self. Now, when it says put off your old self and put on the the new self, if you were to look at Romans 6 and Colossians 3, they both speak of the old man. Colossians 3 speaks of the old man, the new man, putting off and putting on. But they speak of them as if this has already been done. This has been done when we came to Christ, when we were first saved, when we were first converted. The old man died and the new man now has come. And so 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so in Colossians 3 and Romans 6, it teaches the old man who we were in Adam and who we were naturally has after we come to, have come to Christ. Already at that moment, it's been put off and we're now the new man in Christ. But even though, hear this, the old man is put off, the old nature remains. And you still got it and I still got it. And so we're given what the translation here has as commands to put off in verse 22, to renew our minds in verse 23, and to put on. Put on and put off are terms that picture changing one set of clothes for another. 
Friends, Christians have no business and no reason to wear the rags of the old life. And we should be in the process of changing the one for the other. Now, why? Why do we struggle to live the new life? Well, it's because we still have that old nature and we still like the appeal of the world. We want to be liked. We want to be admired. We want to be appreciated. The worst thing for many of us is for us to be thought weird. I used to teach teenagers, those poor teenagers. And I remember a lesson that I had for them, paraphrasing Jesus. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Because that's what the truth does. It sanctifies. It makes you different. But if that's your worst fear because of the fear of man, that I'll be different. You can't live the Christian life. Did you know that? And verse 24 tells us that that new man, when we were saved, when we came to Christ, and now whose nature we are to manifest in our lives, says that new man was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness are reflections of the character of God. And this is the new man, new woman that you were saved to be. So the take-home truth is this. Christians are called to live different from the culture. That's the call to holiness. Now, in order for that to happen, you must have had the old man crucified and the new man given. That happens when you come to Jesus. That happens when you're saved. Some of you are here and you're going... I didn't know there was the stark contrast between the one and the other. God makes it throughout his word, that contrast. The quick and the dead, truth and error, light and darkness, believer and unbeliever, church and the world, on and on it goes. And you are in one or the other. If you are a Christian and you are the new man or new woman, let's ask God to help us live like it. And then if you have never come to Christ, that's how this starts. That's how you appropriate the new man. So how does that happen? Recognize you're in the world. Realize that you are a sinner. And you manifest your sin in all kinds of ways. Everybody does it differently, but we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes you. That includes me. Recognize. That this sin separates us from God and is so serious that God had to come to earth. God the Son became man to live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you deserved. And then repent of your sin. Lord, I'm in the world and I struggle with the world, but I see that you have another calling for your creation. You made us to be for you and about you. And yet we've misappropriated your world for ourselves. And so, Lord, I repent. I'm going to go your way and not my way. I give you my life. And when we bow here in a moment, you pray to God from your heart in your own words. Lord, I'm a sinner. I ask you to call me out of the world and to yourself. I ask you to deliver me, save me, rescue me. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you again for the opportunity, the privilege of being your people, of being here to worship you as your people, to call you our Father, to be your children in your family, 
and to participate in life in the Father's house. Lord, life in the Father's house is not life in the world's house. And you've called us out of the one and to the other. And so, Lord, help us to live like it. And without your aid, we cannot. We thank you, though, Lord. That is your intention always to finish what you start in your people. And he who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Lord, I thank you for every person that is here. And I particularly think of and pray for those who came into this room not knowing what the world was. Not knowing that you have a different calling for your creatures. And that perhaps you and your grace are calling them now. Calling them out of the world and to a relationship with you. Oh, Lord, I pray that some are responding from their hearts right now to you, recognizing their sin, recognizing their position in the world, but also seeing your love for them in sending God the Son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Go with us, we ask you this week, as we seek to be your holy people, your prized possession, different from the world, your saints, your church, God's holy people. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.